My name is Sherry Guess, and this is the Heavily Meddled Podcast. On this podcast, I interview patients, medical professionals, and industry insiders, having important discussions regarding the all-too-commonly experienced but lesser-identified symptoms of hypersensitivity to metals contained in implanted medical and dental hardware, diet, and environments. These metals often cause a variety of dysfunctional immune responses, chronic pain, and other syndromes that fly under the radar of most patients and physicians. During these interviews, the patients and I discuss ideas for managing symptoms, share personal lifestyle modifications, and talk about how to advocate with and educate providers pre- and post-surgery, along with options found for implant removal and the how-to of adverse event reporting. This podcast does not give medical advice. From time to time, I may interview medical professionals that render personal opinions you can use to follow up with your individual provider. Let's roll. Hello, metalheads, and welcome back to this episode of the Heavily Metal Podcast. We have with us Dr. Nadim Haleb from Orthopedic Analysis. And He is the chief executive officer and the head honcho cheese. Doctor, I'm so excited to have you. I'm a fangirl over here. Reading your credentials, just, I'm speechless. I I am so outclassed and outnumbered here. (laughs) No, 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 no. My pleasure to be here. Let me tell my audience a little bit about you and then, man, let's just dive in. We've got so much ground to cover. Dr. Haleb is a full professor in the Department of Orthopedic Surgery at Rush University Medical Center on staff for 27 years. The CEO and principal lab director for orthopedic analysis, which is one of the worldwide leaders in blood LTT metal allergy testing. He's the head of bioengineering solutions. I'm going to let him tell us a bit about that. Graduated in 1996 with a PhD in biomedical engineering from Tulane University, graduated in 1992 with a master's in mechanical engineering from Texas A&M University. Woohoo! Research involves the study of implant degradation and how it relates to immune reactivity, bone disposition, and cell function. Leads a group of scientists and engineers that have been at the forefront of discovery in the field of improving implant performance for the past 20 years. Author of over 100 PubMed articles on metal hypersensitivity in regards to orthopedics, has authored and published many other scientific journal articles, and Dr. Halab has spoken on these subjects nationally and internationally, also sat as an expert for the FDA and device panel and other meetings. Wow. <laughs> yes, I don't know who that dude is, but he sounds old. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you, you look very young, but that's a lot of living. I don't even know where to start to pick your brain. Tell us a little bit more about your background, your hobbies, your passions. Where to start? Past almost 30 years in Chicago in the Department of Orthopedic Surgery there. This whole thing started us researching people that were having unexplained reactions to implants, if I'm diving right into the subject. And the question is why pre-op cases were very ambiguous at the time, but post-op, every once in a while, the surgeons in the department would see these folks that came in with pretty severe reactions around their implants and no infection. And at that 
early time, the question was, what is going on and why is this occurring? The issue of hypersensitivity was not new. It just was maybe this is a hypersensitivity response to implants, as others had postulated earlier, even within the orthopedic research arena. And so we took those, picked that up and ran with it. And then pretty soon we were investigating different types of testing on people's blood to measure hypersensitivity responses and found that we did migration inhibition assays and cytokine assays and these LTT testing and really found that the LTT testing worked the best out of all these different assays and published on our early results in terms of how those different assays measured this response. And then we started getting requests from surgeons around the country to do this testing for us, having read our articles and seen us at the national meetings. And so we started doing it, but it's a little expensive. So we asked them to donate to Rush to fund this. But pretty soon that became an inappropriate way of both donating to Rush to get these results. So we were more or less forced to take it outside of Rush and started as a separate company. And so that's how orthopedic analysis was started. Let me ask you a quick question. I'm just a lay person. I don't know how it all works. You are not a MD. You are not a medical doctor. You work at Rush University. What is your exposure? How do you get from the classroom to the OR? How does that interface work? There's a lot of downsides about being a professor in a, a hospital environment and clinical world, but there's a lot of benefits too. And the benefits are that the research you do is alongside your colleagues that are surgeons and physicians, and that it is very easy to make that transition. You can be in the OR with them. You can retrieve patient samples if the patients have been consented appropriately and agree to that sort of thing. And so it's much easier to do these kind of meaningful clinical studies, whereas in regular university settings, it's much harder to then go visit your neighborhood hospital, get those interactions. And so that's one of the big pluses that has I've been fortunate enough to work at Rush, which is a leading orthopedic institution. I think we're still top five in the country uh, over the past 25, 30 years. That's incredible. That should give you some clout right there. <laughs> you think, so, right? But <laughs> Yeah. Well, we're going to talk about that. <laughs> so the beginnings of orthopedic analysis came that way. Did you have to branch out on your own completely? Was it a conflict of interest with physicians or groups funding studies? What made you say, we can make a living doing this? We could start a, a company doing this testing. How did you jump from where you started to this full-blown lab that you have? It was really a, not a conflict of interest at all. It was more or less a duty to pursue this because we had researched it and had published on it for 10 years or so by the time it had started as a company. And the company only started because of those publications and because we were asked to perform testing for orthopedic surgeons around the country. It became inappropriate for us to do that in a university setting. So we were more or less forced to just start it as a separate company. Why inappropriate? Because it's costly to do okay. the testing. And then to fund that testing, the patients would either need to pay the lab directly, which is not a means of doing things in academia, 
Um, okay. The way that we devised early on was that they would donate a contribution to Rush University, and then that would go into a fund that then paid for that testing. Having hundreds of little donations like that for a specific purpose starts to blur the lines of what's appropriate for philanthropic donation to a university. After it got to a certain point, uh, philanthropy department was uncomfortable with that, appropriately so. And so um, it was more or less, uh, feel free to develop this into a a company. And we already had a certain amount of people coming in. So it was not uh, a risky venture at that that point. Got it. So you said that you had a lot of doctors coming to you for orthopedic analysis. My experience as a layperson has been that so many orthopedic surgeons, other providers don't have any clue that metal LTT blood allergy testing is a thing, nor do they think that it's clinically validated. I can't tell you how many patients come to me and say, I had the MELISA test. I had the orthopedic analysis test. My surgeon won't accept that. They said it's not approved. It's not FDA approved. Why don't more providers know about or understand the metal LTT testing methodology? Oh, yeah, that's a great question and a long one. We'll probably revisit it in several forms along this, uh, this interview Please. because there's so much packed in there. Yeah, and I've um, got questions around that too. Oh, good. The early days, when I say a lot of physicians, I mean like one a week or okay. <laughs> one every couple of weeks. That was a lot for us in those days. You are right. There is not a lot of acceptance of this still in the orthopedic community. And the issue of whether it's getting more popular and less popular is also something that we probably can talk about at length. But right now, it is still very few people are being tested nationwide. We are not a big company. We have less employees than an average subway. We don't do the amount of testing that you would think we would do given the amount of orthopedic patients. And the rates of metal sensitivity just amongst the general population, which is approximately a lower estimate is a 10%. The higher estimate is about 15%. And that's just people walking in to have orthopedic surgery because that's the general population. And so somewhere in that range is where people in your area probably fall. Some yep. areas environmentally have higher rates than other areas. And it's still kind of relegated to the periphery of things that go on in orthopedics. And you're right. There's a lot of people that they don't believe in it and there's a lack of validation. Let me give you an example. Do you know my personal story? Did you happen to catch that yet? I have not. The short version, and we do have listeners that haven't heard everything. My personal story is episode one and two. I've had 32 surgeries, many orthopedic surgeries. I've got a body full of metal. I couldn't walk five feet. After an SI joint fusion, I found a doctor who was board certified in immunology, allergy, rheumatology, internal medicine doc, took the orthopedic analysis requisition in with peer-reviewed literature, clinical studies, because that's what they want. And I presented it to her. I said, I think I'm allergic to my implants. I didn't think. I knew at that point. I had all the anecdotal evidence in the world. I said, I'm allergic to my metal implants. I want to have this test from orthopedic analysis. Can you sign this requisition? She said, oh, that's not a good test. She said, there's no science behind that test. I said, explain that to me. I bought you probably five or 10 off your website, clinical peer-reviewed journal articles. She said, oh, I've read all of those. Some of those studies were new. She said, I don't like that test. It can be positive one day and negative the next day, which 
to me, I don't even see how that would even be possible. Either the cells proliferate or they don't. But that was my experience. And I have one to two podcast listeners a week write me and say, I got the test. I took it to my doctor and he said, it's not a valid test. Yeah, I have to watch my language at this point. Yes. <laughs> because it's validated from every perspective. And it's been published on ad nauseum over the past really 50 years, not only by us over the past 25, but by others before that. LTT testing was used in the early days for testing for drug allergies and still can be. That's a service that we provide. And yet, as you notice on medications, a lot of them say there might be hypersensitivity response. And yet, very few, if any, drug companies do. Wait, you all provide that? Orthopedic analysis provides drug allergy testing? Yes, we do. If you're a drug company, but we have had uh, takers on that because it is just something they can include in their literature and not actually do the testing for it. But that's another entire discussion uh, when it comes to that. There are some aspects of hypersensitivity responses in general that make me sympathetic to physicians and in particular orthopedic surgeons when trying to tackle this and fit this into their daily practice. One of those is like any other condition that we have as humans, it does depend environmentally on what we're doing. If we are extremely healthy one minute, our immune system will be a certain way. And if we suddenly become sedentary and drink lots of alcohol, that will affect our immune system dramatically. So you could affect results from one week to the next by altering your environment dramatically like that. So she's not entirely wrong. And yet LTT testing as a means to test for hypersensitivity has been around for a long time, is validated and used in critical cases of organ transplant as well. At least that's where it came from originally, testing people that they wouldn't have a reaction to somebody else's organ during organ transplant. So it was used in the most critical medical issues. And that physicians discount it now, I just don't know why that is. This may be the wrong word, but you're kind of buddy-buddy with the FDA or you have some exposure. Have you guys tried to approach the FDA on making this a standardized test? And if not, why not? What's standing in the way? Yeah, you're not the first person to ask that question. We would uh, love it to be a standardized test, of course, particularly since there's a lot of people who go into orthopedic surgery pre-op not knowing that they have an extreme metal sensitivity. A lot of people do know they have had previous reactions to jewelry. And some surgeons these days just use that information alone, a patient history, and take whatever evasive action they can based on that alone. Others think that TT testing is the evidence that's needed to take some sort of dramatic, different tact you know, do something different than they're normally used to because that involves a risk. Anything using a different implant or a different technique involves surgical risk. So they need a little bit more evidence and then that LTT testing would provide that. But really where it comes into its own is post-op as a diagnosis of exclusion when people have pain and inflammation and been tested repeatedly for infection that comes back negative. 
Now to go do a revision, surgeries are surgeries and they can be life-threatening and often are. That's where LTT can really give surgeons the evidence they need to revise an implant and go in for repeated surgery or take an implant out that's not needed anymore because it was used to fuse some bones together that were broken, et cetera. So what does it take to get the FDA on board to get this standardized? Have you tried to approach and what has the response been? Yeah, I thought you might be asking something like that. <laughs> and it's a tough That's the million dollar issue. question. Right. Well, I, you know what side I fall on? I fall on the side of better safe than sorry and more testing is warranted. I think the FDA was on board with that a few years ago, especially after the metal on metal, I want to call it the debacle that we were always opposed to and never thought those metal on metal implants would get as popular as they did. Now, when they did fail, they didn't fail all of them. They just failed at a higher rate than normal implants do to make them the quote disaster that they were. It wasn't that everybody who had those implants failed. They were just not as good as what else was out there. I think at this point, post-COVID, when orthopedic surgeries are down and have not gone back to the levels of pre-COVID, there is a fear that issues that cause people reluctance to get orthopedic implants will hurt healthcare. And I mean hurt people, not necessarily the companies and the physicians, in that people whose health would benefit more from getting an implant and being able to retain mobility won't do that for fear of the implant. And so I think the FDA's charge to look out for the general welfare and the big picture has made them reluctant. Of course, I disagree with that. I would argue the counterpoint that there's a lot of value to it. It's funny you bring that up because I've had the, the fortunate and unfortunate experience of some viral social media posts that went out to millions of people. And I have one that is kind of trending right now that is different than the others. It's getting a ton of hate. It must have wound up on some medical community board. It was a, hey, these surgeries can leave metal clips and staples and biopsy markers in without the patient knowing. And it landed on some medical board. And I have had more providers come in and say, systemic metal allergies aren't a thing. Would you rather bleed to death? Would you rather not do the surgery? You know, you're fear mongering, you're scaring people away from surgery. And I'm like, None of those things. I said these surgeries can leave metal. It is information. It is not don't have the surgery. It is not don't have a colonoscopy. It is not don't get an implant. It's forewarned is forearmed. I need every mm -hmm. surgery I mm -hmm. had. I've got two fusions here. Mm -hmm. I've got a lumbar fusion. I've got two sacral fusions. I needed every one of them. I would have had them. But had I known, I could have reacted or would react. Mm -hmm. I couldn't walk five feet I was completely bedridden for years. I had 35 specialists and every test was normal. And if I would have known that titanium wasn't inert, that there was nickel in titanium and that this was an option, I could have changed my diet. I could have taken antihistamines. I could have looked at alternative materials. I could have had the hardware removed sooner. There are mm -hmm, things, mm -hmm. I agree with you. There are steps we can take if we know the possibility exists. Yeah, there are definitely steps to take. There are anti-inflammatory medications that are probably better, more targeted to hypersensitivity responses than just antihistamines as well. I'm stepping outside my area. I'm allowed to give medical advice to physicians, but in general- I, I know low-dose naltrexone has been advice. really promising. 
for a lot of patients, low dose naltrexone modulates the immune system. And yeah, it's um, met- really... Methotrexate is a possibility. It used to be used to immunosuppress people for organ transplant. And in the early days of it being used for rheumatoid arthritis, we were very skeptical of it. We thought it was being used inappropriately because it was such a powerful drug and it would have major problems. But in fact, low-dose methotrexate has been shown to be pretty effective as an anti-inflammatory and anti-proliferative type medication for inflammation and particularly for hypersensitivity in some cases. That's another possibility. The folks that are familiar with that are the rheumatologists these days. Interesting. I haven't even gone there with my metal sensitivity. I still have so much metal inside and so much pain that I was taking Allegra three times a day and I still have to watch what I eat so I can walk because there is that kind of reactivity. I didn't even think of that, but I have an amazing rheumatologist. So that is information that will really help my listening public for sure. So thank you for that. Let's come back to the testing. What information does an LTT test give that patch testing doesn't? Because we know patch testing is accepted and paid for. That's the gold standard. I'm going to get myself in trouble here again, but do there it. You go. We're all about um, trouble. <laughs> do it. Yeah. We are and, not and afraid. We didn't even get to the favorite metal band. I was, I was expecting that one right off the bat. Oh yeah. We haven't got there yet. All right. We are not big fans of patch testing. LTT specifically gives an objective view of what's happening. You don't need anybody grading a patch test. If patch test was a valid way of determining internal hypersensitivity responses, then some of the downsides uh, of that associated with orthopedics compared to LTT is that it does not have a nice mechanism for objectively assessing the level of reactivity. There's not a stimulation index. You have to do a plus one, a plus two, plus three. And one observer's plus one response is another observer's plus three response. And the skin reactions probably differ. A patient who's allergic to nickel may react differently on the skin externally than internally. Is that what you're saying? Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. The skin is one of our front lines of defenses. And there are very specific cells in the skin that are called Langerhans cells. And they process antigen uniquely and express that to T-cells, things such as poison ivy that you can be exposed to essentially once. Those cells are so good at taking that in and then expressing it as a antigen to lymphocytes that those lymphocytes become sensitized, go back, and then days later, come back to those same Langerhans cells and attach and become proliferative and activate. And these unique type of cells in the skin are just one way that the skin is pretty different than the environment around an implant where there is all kinds of circulating metals for one, serum proteins for another, dendritic cells that hang around in that vicinity their entire existence. And then you have much more circulating lymphocytes, more access to monocytes. There can be damage to tissue in that area from the implant as well, which does not occur on the skin. All of those would presumably act systemically and not express themselves on the skin. Not to mention my biggest problem with patch testing is that one of the ways we know the validity of the whole issue is that we've done cell culture testing 
We've done animal testing where we can induce metal sensitivity in most any animal model. We've done it in mice and it's in group studies and case studies ad nauseum. There's you know, hundreds of publications, if not thousands. We induce sensitivity on mice by applying the metals to their skin in almost the same way that a patch test is applied. That means we're inducing sensitivity in a mouse that has been not sensitized by something like a patch test and leaving it on their skin for uh, a number of days. Mixing metals with petroleum jelly and putting it on people's skin as a routine test to see if they're hypersensitive runs a risk of sensitizing them. That's where I find our biggest problem with that is. Unfortunately, it's, it remains very easy to get and reimbursable, et cetera. So it's still the most uh, popular test for determining a metal hypersensitivity response. If I understand Sorry, you right, the problem is that it can induce sensitivity where sensitivity might not have been, which would be a, a bigger deal for somebody who has to receive an implant down the road. Yes. We know it doesn't detect a titanium allergy. I think that is correct. Terribly yeah. ineffective for that. I went to a, my allergist yesterday. She's amazing. And she doesn't poo poo metal allergy at all. She's got her own nickel allergy, but she is like most of the awareness for her is manifestations on the skin. They don't understand this whole internal systemic thing. Mine, even when they removed my implants, the areas around my implants looked normal. They didn't look inflamed. They looked fine. But yet I walked out of the OR with 60% less pain when I had my first set of 10 implants removed. There's yeah, that's, something that's going on systemically. Of, of for sure. And that's one of the problems these days is that there's some studies that look for lymphocyte responses around an implant and then try to correlate those with a positive LTT test once that person is being revised. And they don't find any lymphocytes there. And so they say this LTT test is not good for that. But when you have a metal hypersensitivity response, it's not some sort of generalized response for your liver or your kidney, where you can just take a biopsy of any part of that, and you'll see that condition. Those lymphocytes will be in very little specific places around that implant, unless you took out all the tissue around an implant and analyzed all of it, you could easily miss it. And so the lack of evidence has been kind of turned on its head in terms of its implications when it should just mean they didn't find that there. And people are like, we need more studies, but it's the device manufacturers funding the studies and they don't want it to come out that 15% of people can react to the implant. So they're maybe in bed with the FDA on this a little bit. I think it Sorry, needs to all come and be put on the table. I'm right there with you. Why can't we all work together and have implants, but have safer implants and have safer implant processes? <laughs> As a researcher in this area, it's tough to get funding because it's not novel. And because all research is expensive and there's a lot of competing interests trying to get a very small and a disappearing pot of money for conducting this research from the NIH. And it's not perceived as a major enough issue. A lot of people feel like, well, just make better implants. Don't look at all the responses to implants, just make better implants. Of course, that's not the answer in the short term or the long term. Metals offer extreme amount of advantages. I always say nobody wants to look outside their airplane and see the plastic wing or ceramic wing. We all like a nice metal wing on our airplane that can bounce around and take the fatigue and has a high strength. So metals are probably here to stay for a long time. And 
dealing with the risks of that and the known downsides is just something that we need to contend with as best we can. And, and we hope that LTT testing provides at least some assessment of risk in that world. Awesome. Okay. Big question. How does the orthopedic analysis test differ from the MELISA test? Both of you are incredible. I'm a patient of both of you. I've gleaned different information from both, but I would like to know your answer on that one. My answer is they're basically the same thing, actually. We're not trying to differentiate. I don't know. I don't want to malign MELISA. They do a nice LTT. Uh, they have for a while. There's a few things that they do I disagree with. We certainly disagree with the adhesion assay that they use as their little different procedure that tries to strip the monocytes and macrophages that adhere to the well out of the lymphocyte population so that they're testing more of a pure lymphocyte population without those monocytes and monocytes that become macrophages in the dish. We've done a lot of research in this area. We received an award in orthopedics for it, showing how critical it is for those cells, those macrophages and monocytes to be there to eat the metal-altered serum proteins and then express them on their surface for the lymphocytes to react to. So not only do we believe that that's an important thing to keep, but we've done adhesion assays in the past, in the early days, I'm talking 25 years ago. And it's almost impossible for the same operator using the same sample to get the same amount of lymphocytes removed from that adhesion assay twice in a row. So it's a very non-standardized process and user-dependent, technician-dependent. And that's another big downside of it. But ultimately, we're just not uh, a big fan of it because it also adds another processing step. And our goal is to keep the cells as happy as possible for this week while they're being cultured and to make it seem as most like the body as they possibly can. The more processing you do, the more unhappy those cells are going to become. And that's a whole extra processing step as well. So that's one big critical issue related to that adhesion assay that they do. All that said, the LTT is still just a regular LTT. We disagree with some of the challenge agents that they use, such as titanium. They use titanium oxide, which is not a metal, that's a ceramic. So a metal connected to oxygen is such a stable ceramic material, not a metallic material, that it is used in white paint because it's the white in white paint. It's the white makeup. in your white salad dressing. It's in all makeup and creams. It's a good one to test for titanium particulate, but it's not the same titanium that's in orthopedic implants. Unfortunately, the only way to test for that, because titanium just isn't soluble in a water. Even um, you take titanium uh, chloride or a salt of titanium or sulfate, and if you put that even in a strong acid, it'll fall out of solution as titanium oxide because it just wants to become this titanium oxide so quickly. So even if you try to use a salt of titanium, if you're still just testing titanium oxide, which again may be relevant for allergies to creams and salad dressings and toothpaste and everything that has that white stuff in it. But 
it's not the same thing as an orthopedic implant titanium. For that, we've had to use titanium particles that are made from implants. And it's not that only that they're made from implants, but they're in the size range that is relevant to orthopedic implants. And that's in the one micron range, which is about 10 times smaller than a cell so that the cell can eat that and then have a reaction to it. Appropriate challenge agents is the battle we've always battled right from the start. We feel that the challenge agents that we have now are particularly relevant for orthopedic implants, maybe not the world of like food and environmental exposure, et cetera. But, you know, we're orthopedic analysis. That's where all of our expertise lies. That's where all of our publications have been. We've more or less restricted ourselves to that area. So we think we're better able to test for the materials that somebody would have a reaction to in their orthopedic implants. Good information for sure. Something you guys offer that Meliza doesn't offer is the metal ion testing, the circulating ions. Now I had an elevated cobalt ion and at the time I had testing, I see you now offer nickel ion testing. That wasn't offered very long ago. Is that new? Or did um, I miss no, it? I, I think maybe you missed it. I hate to say, it, but it's not something that we advertise or that we're trying to expand. Our ion testing is good for people who are having bad responses with their implants and they have a lot of something like a metal on metal implant, then there'd be a good reason to do ion testing. We tend to put a lot more stock in our LTT responses. Because ion testing, it's a little bit less certain as to what to do with those results. Coming from an orthopedic surgery department, I'm very familiar with all the risks of surgery. So for somebody to do a revision on somebody that has, say, elevated level of metal in their blood, but everything is great. You know, the implant looks great. The x-rays look great. Their health is great. But they've got this high level of metal. What do you do with that? That's not as really certain because are you going to place them at risk for surgery at that point? Yeah. And all the downsides. I've got a friend in that exact position with a metal on metal hip and she's fighting lymphoma right now with a mass on that hip on metal on metal, but there's no allergy to anything. And yeah. what do you do? Yeah. Well, right? I do would go get that hip replaced. I, I mean, I, I would, if there's like a MRI evidence of a big reaction at the hip right there, then I'm, I'm not allowed to give medical advice to her. Uh, I would just say if that was me, I would probably have it revised if there was a determinable mass. Because one of the other issues associated with some of those growths, some of those like uh, non-tumor tumors, essentially, is that um, they can invade the bone interface. And so each day that goes by, you could have a little less bone for the surgeon to stick the next implant onto. And you really want to optimize that. And surgeries are tougher the older we get. So yes. um, having it while you're as young as possible is not a bad idea either. Right. And now a word from our sponsor. Attention metalheads, are you struggling with skin rashes, joint and systemic pain, or fatigue that just won't go away? Type 4 metal allergy is often overlooked as a culprit in many of today's chronic illnesses. Get to the root of the problem with Meliza testing. Meliza is a scientifically proven and clinically validated test that measures immune reactivity to metal allergens like nickel, cobalt, and titanium. With fast and reliable results, you can get the answers you need to find relief and live a healthier life. 
Don't let metal allergies control your life any longer. Visit Meliza.org to learn more and schedule your test. Trust us, you'll be glad you did. Meliza, a valuable diagnostic tool in medicine. Okay, so here's a question, and I didn't have this on my radar, but you brought it up. Uh, you brought up the different levels. Um, so when you get an orthopedic analysis test, say for nickel, there are three different levels of nickel tested, and they mm-hmm. are three different, I guess, concentrations. And some show more re- more reactivity than others. Can you explain that? Yes, absolutely. That goes back to why we think we are also different from the Melisa test, who does two concentrations. Because the response, as it turns out, for metals is a subtle response. It's not super aggressive in most people that have a hypersensitivity response. Um, People do not go into anaphylactic shock because of metals. Maybe there's been a case report unaware of. But it's not like, uh, say, latex allergy, where the more surgeries you have, the more you can become allergic to latex to the point of having anaphylactic shock if you come into contact with latex. So hypersensitivities can get worse, actually, with the more surgeries you do as opposed to uh, better. I know I had one of the nickels. I think it might have been the smaller one that had the greater reactivity. I don't know, but explain that whole thing because I've never understood that. Sure. The three concentrations are important because a hypersensitivity response for subtle antigens like metals is dose dependent. So you can have a reaction at one concentration and not have a reaction at another concentration. In the past, we used to do four concentrations of metals, not just three. And so we've whittled it down to three. If over time we see evidence that we're better off with just two concentrations, we'll reduce that to two. But right now, We don't think we can get away from that. That comes at a cost to us and the amount of blood that we need, et cetera, to be able to do those three concentrations so that we stand the best chance of catching a hypersensitivity response at any one of those concentrations. Now, some physicians have told us that they've developed their own method of determining absolutely positive reactivity where they have to see two of the three concentrations show a positive response. And then that to them means positive response. But that's- I never would have met criteria for that. That's their own devised method. We haven't published anything on that, nor have we seen anything published on that. And so while that might make sense to them and their experience, we just encourage them to try to publish those results. My molybdenum was not clinically significant. It was mild in all the ranges, but the lowest concentration of molybdenum was three times as high as the higher concentrations. Do you see that often? And how does that translate to a layperson? Yeah, we do see that often. A lot of the early work 20 years ago was taking these concentrations of metals and determining what was toxic, what was too high, what was too low, what never caused any kind of lymphocyte activation in vitro, and what killed all the lymphocytes in vitro, what was too high. That work is published. What we found were these ranges here. They're not the same for everybody. A 13-year-old's immune system can withstand a lot more metal toxicity than a 90-year-old. And so given we're in this world of different reactivity, sometimes the high concentrations are toxic. 
for some people, where we'll see that high concentration actually lower the proliferation because a lot of those cells are not viable anymore. So we have to use those three concentrations. So it's not surprising to see those different results. Also, because it's not the lymphocytes reacting to the metal themselves, it's them reacting to how the metal combines with proteins and then how that forms some sort of unhappy complex for the lymphocytes that then lymphocytes then react to. Those different concentrations allow for those combination kinetics to occur at different concentrations that would form different compounds. And so those compound in the low concentration might be different than something in the high concentration that just forms big clumps of stuff and doesn't create the same kind of reactivity. So we unfortunately do not think we'll ever be getting away from different concentrations. Whether we can get that down to two in the future, like Melissa does now, that's to be determined when we have the evidence to support it. One thing that's also important when it comes to those concentrations and what's making sure that those cells are viable, since I'll probably have an opportunity in the first discussion to PR this, but I might as well PR this now. One thing that is critical and a big difference between us and Eliza, and I didn't go into this earlier, is that we go through great lengths to make sure that the cells that come to us are very alive and very viable. And that is by two means. Number one, we don't accept samples that are routinely over 24 hours old. As they go through the mail and they're in those tubes, the viability of cells go down. The farthest away we've received samples from is Australia, where they came in a little after 24 hours, like 30 hours, and they were okay. But if samples come in at 48 hours, we very rarely see that there's enough viability in those cells to conduct testing. And not only do we use a shortened period of time, only 24 hours, to get those cells to us, but we have a patented kit for winter shipping where those cells are kept nice and warm at room temperature, even though they're mailed from Minnesota. They also have a kit for winter. so They actually do not. So we tested their conditions for their winter kit. They do okay. not have the kind of patented warming system okay. that we do. If you just throw in a warm pack, it heats the blood too hot and then cools off too cold. You have to have a heat source, and then some heat sinks as well as the blood. And that's our patent that they couldn't use in the US without violating it. Okay. If you just pack them in styrofoam and put some gel packs in there, we've tested this, does not keep them above 40 degrees for even 24 hours. And if those cells get down to 40 degrees or below, their viability goes way down to like okay. less than 30%. That is one very important aspect to sending things through the mail. All that said, they still conduct a basic LTT test that is the same LTT tests that have been conducted over the past 50 years by us and others. And so their results are still valid for the challenge agents that we don't have a problem with. Right. Understand. Okay. 
What seems to be the general attitude about metal hypersensitivity now in the orthopedic community? Are you seeing a change, a shift, a pullback? Yeah, I think it was accepted much more readily in the days when it was relegated to research. Then when it started to enter, testing is available and may affect their practices. I think once that happened, the biggest camp is the don't know anything about it. But the other camps are those that use it in their practice, maybe use it routinely for people that they think are going to benefit from it or be difficult cases. And then there's the don't believe it camp, you know, brushing it aside and are vehemently against it. Or it's so rare. I've always said two things to those physicians that don't believe it. I say, you know, you've had those cases where there's pain, inflammation, repeated testing for infection in every way possible, and they all come back negative. And you do a revision, and the situation resolves itself. What do you think that was, if not hypersensitivity? Because people say like, I've never had a case of this. Yes, you have, you just didn't identify it as a hypersensitivity case. If you're an expert orthopedic surgeon, you've run into those cases ad nauseum that are difficult that way. I do have sympathy for orthopedic surgeons. They are charged with a lot. It's tough to do these surgeries and they're very dangerous. There's all kinds of things that can go wrong and they try to keep all that in their head while they're doing them. So for us to come forward with this additional problem that is not a definite, but adds a risk factor to it. And you and I can see the absolute value of that. For a lot of physicians, it's just adding more to their plate their plate is already quite full. I understand the pushback, but if they could just see it as an advantage, you know, an extra tool and not something that's going to impugn their actions. I would say ultimately, we would all get an implant if we need an implant. And we will do what our orthopedic surgeons say in the method that offers the most information and allows a knowledgeable understanding of what's going on and to factor in any kind of alternatives that might be available. What are you seeing in your students that are coming? Are they more progressive, more open-minded? And do you cover this in your classes? I think who this is probably most relevant for is residents. It would be the orthopedic residents who are full-fledged orthopedic surgeons by the time they finish their residency. Probably where they do their residency, it really depends on their attitudes of this because whether they're in a camp that disregards it and gives talks on how you should disregard it or whether they're in a camp where you should factor it into your clinical decision-making But really, it's not very popular out there. And so the few of us that talk about this are just not doing a good enough job, not getting the message out. So that's I'm your girl. I am going (laughs) to rock the world with this. So certainly, I am brassy enough to be the mouthpiece. I don't know if I'm qualified, but I'm certainly brassy. (laughs) (laughs) Well, we appreciate your efforts. Thank you. How many providers do you think have titanium allergies on their radar? Very few. Titanium is another one of those sticky wickets that even those that are considerate of metal hypersensitivity, because titanium forms that titanium oxide layer on top of it, and that titanium oxide layer is a ceramic, not a metal. The metal part is just there underneath it and has all the other things that metal do, conducts electricity and electrons that can tunnel through the oxide layer and combine with proteins and Titanium ions are released in some form and can combine with proteins. Because titanium allergy is such a subset of metal allergy, 
it just is like that when it comes to its um, clinical importance That's it's been relegated to as well. People tend to not believe it even more than they do metal allergy in general. There has been case studies, maybe you should do one yourself, where a titanium implant had a rash and inflammation around it. It was removed and it went away and it was put back and then the rash and inflammation came back. So that satisfies one of the tenements of medical knowledge, Cox postulate for causality. We've seen case studies where- Nobody's putting my implant back, sorry. (laughs) Over my dead body. Right. We'll come back to titanium in a minute because I have some more titanium questions. How do you feel about metal hypersensitivity reactions to lesser thought about implants, surgical clips, staples, cardiac vascular stents, pacemakers, spinal cord stimulators, still implants? Yeah, that's also a real issue. It's another one that's very difficult to tease out how important it is, the prevalence, the risk factors, and the downsides, et cetera, because with orthopedic implants, there is a huge piece of metal that's going in you. And all metals, even if it was pure gold, will corrode once they're placed in the body. All metals corrode in general. They're generally in an unhappy state as a pure metal. We get it out of the ground and spend a lot of energy getting it into a pure metal form. And it wants to just corrode back to like iron oxide, for example, with iron wants as to be quickly dirty. as it can. Yeah. Wants to go to a lower energy state. And so shame um, on that. Yeah. Although don't we all I would <laughs> right. true lower true energy that. state sounds pretty good to me. We're finding um, a ton of people that just have three coli clips, no other metal, and they're reacting as severely as a patient with a, a knee replacement. That's possible. What we don't know is a lot when it comes to that. There hasn't been the studies. You do have a patient, and I'm not going to out her, at least one that I know of, an orthopedic analysis patient that was super sick from cholecystectomy clips, no other surgical clips, no other exposures, no other surgeries, no dental fillings, had her orthopedic analysis test, came back showing her positive for nickel, had the cholecystectomy clips removed, and literally came back from the brink of death, no symptoms left. See, that's the kind of case study that... Mm-hmm. You know, I'll I would love it if her. she and her surgeon, yeah, got in touch with us and then we could I'll um, make that happen. We could publish because there's just a, a lack of that out there. Especially these days, uh, medicine has to be evidence-based practice. There well, has there to are be, surgeons. It, My last episode was with a surgeon here in Texas that's removing clips and staples. And there's another one in Austin that removes clips and staples. And both of them, I believe, are requiring an LTT test prior to that removal. I will hook you up after the podcast with those surgeons because there's a whole set of patients. I'm just not very versed in that area. I'm not sure what they're made of, how easily they corrode. A lot of times it's the corrosion process itself that creates those bad proteins and reactivity that then results in pain and inflammation. Let me help you. They're inert titanium. Didn't you know that? Oh, well, um, yeah, titanium is about as good as it's going to get. Unfortunately, you know, it can be problems for a lot of people, but I would probably opt for titanium compared to other metals. Here's the interesting thing. I have six pelvic implants. I still have a cervical fusion, still have a lumbar fusion. I had three cholecystectomy clips that were this big removed. You would think with all the other metal, I wouldn't experience any improvement in symptoms. It was life-changing just having the three coli clips removed. My hair came back curly and soft. I decreased my antihistamines probably by 25%. And and I had 25% less pain, even removing three coli clips with that much metal still remaining in. 
yeah, that needs to be reported in the literature and characterized and we're going to get there. And then once case studies are done, we need the group studies. Yep. Because, but the medicine is slow. Why don't surgeons understand that there's trace amounts of nickel and titanium alloy? That's a good question. Unfortunately, there's a lot of surgeons that have no idea of the major constituents of the alloys they put in, much less the minor constituents. One of the unfortunate facts associated with orthopedic alloys are that the orthopedic industry represents such a tiny percentage of the metals industry at large that despite their attention to detail and all the rigorousness that they are regulated with in terms of analyzing the stocks that they get, and there is still variation from stock to stock and lot to lot. Even if 99% of one lot looks a certain way, the 1% could have some nickel accumulations in it, which I have seen when looking at implant debris, because that's another area of research that we do. Not only can nickel be there because it's tough to get it out completely, but it can actually be there in the microscopic level at a pretty high rate, enough to cause activation of a cell. For titanium, depending on the lot, it could be more of an issue than other titaniums. And whether it's a titanium alloy or whether it's pure titanium also matters. True that the FDA does not require trace ingredients to be listed, trace elements, correct? That, to my knowledge, is correct, yeah. Because, number one, it's technically very difficult, if not impossible, to do that on a wide enough basis without implants costing triple what they cost now. We had the discussion with my neurosurgeon before my SI joint implants were implanted. I knew there was a portion of nickel in it, but here's the crazy thing. My pelvic implants are less than one ten thousandth of one percent nickel, and they sent me over the edge. Another possibility with that we see, and this is a big issue that, that I'm glad you brought it up, is that your nickel reactivity is not limited to nickel. Metals, due to their uh, shared electron structure, are magical in that they conduct electricity, and we certainly need electricity for everything. But one of the downsides of that is their ability to share those electrons and those outer orbitals make them good at sharing their little atoms with different other atoms like your serum proteins. And when it comes to sharing, nickel is one of the best. The only thing better than nickel is mercury. By being so nickel allergic in an in vitro test, you could also be allergic in vivo inside the body to one of the other major metals that are coming out, say for titanium alloy, aluminum, or vanadium. Just because you only show an allergy response on LTT or patch test to nickel doesn't mean necessarily that's the only metal that you would be reactive to in vivo. Okay. Wow, that's news to me. That's interesting. Yeah. Yeah. In fact, I would say it's more likely that your nickel response is a nice canary in the coal mine kind of uh, response to uh, metals that it would impugn other metals as well. So it doesn't wow. mean okay. like just a nickel-free implant is your answer. If nickel was your only element that you were really reactive to, only metal, putting in a nickel-free cobalt alloy implant 
would not be a good solution. I would still opt for the titanium, something that's or that, non-metallic. If there's or an non-metallic, option. something that's going to which we'll get the least we'll get to in a second. It's on the list. All right, all right, great. <laughs> what do you think about absorbable clips and or absorbable screws and hardware in orthopedics? Are these becoming popular? I sure hope not, especially metallic ones, because. They don't absorb benignly, and a lot of them claim that they are essential to metabolism in the body. And so why, if they're essential, are they going to be bad if they just degrade away? But they actually corrode away, so the corrosion process itself can be detrimental. And it's sometimes a matter of dose and concentration. You know, water can be toxic if you drink enough of it. And that's I didn't pretty- think... I- that I knew that absorbable clips and screws were made of metal. Are there non-metal absorbable clips and screws? I thought I heard of a uh, dissolvable know, I don't, calcium it, screw. I'm kind of restricted to the orthopedic arena just because even there, there's too much knowledge and it's, it's hard to keep up with everything, especially okay. uh, orthopedics and immunology. Once it comes to clips and screws and what's they're made of in terms of those biomaterials, I'm not as versed as I probably should be in that okay. area. I do hear talk of magnesium, total implants that will corrode away. That's what I'm really addressing when it comes to absorbable larger implants that are on the horizon. That will be a lot of the same issues times 10 if they ever get popular. When it comes to absorbable clips, I think there's both polymeric ones and metal ones. The ramifications of that are in the degradation products. And can those degradation products elicit a response in certain people, I'm sure they can and do. And probably something we should look at in orthopedic analysis, particularly in research. But, you know, there's enough. We can't convince people of the utility of doing it for large pieces of metal going into people. So we see that as a first stage before we can get to clips and go there. But you're absolutely right. You know, for people that are having them and have reactions, it certainly matters now. So. Yeah. So talking about big metal, are you aware of any non-nickel or non-metal stem options for joint replacement surgeries like hips and knees? No. And believe it or not, I wouldn't want one even if I had a metal hypersensitivity response. I myself have a mild one to nickel. I would still opt for a metal one for the same reasons that you wouldn't want to look outside and see your plane wing made of that. Once these things fail in vivo in a catastrophic way, the problems are much worse than inflammation that we should be able to tackle through a number of appropriate anti-inflammatory medications. We've done research suggesting that anti-IL-17 really works well for tackling this interleukin-17. It's a mediator that's released by the most popular types of lymphocytes that react to metals that we found. So there's a medication that counteracts IL-17? Yeah, there is. We patented that through Rush and to date no takers from the pharmaceutical industry. Me, (laughs) me, can I be the guinea pig? I think it's almost free if you bought it from Rush, which is the university uh, that go to them. You and I are going to (laughs) talk. As the um, heavily metal podcast listeners start burning up orthopedic analysis for the IL-17 modulator. Oh my God. uh, That's out there, but still at its infancy, even if somebody bought it and had to go through the clinical testing Now you've told us about it. Now we can't have it. You're dangling the carrot. Surprisingly, I would still advise methotrexate at low dose with a rheumatologist supervision. 
because that I wonder about like, like rituxan and like some of the other IV therapies too. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Wow. Um, some of those are very expensive and hard to get. Something like methotrexate really interesting is, is very affordable. Again, very surprising to me that it works as well as it does. What do you think about shoulders? Is there a non-metal alternative for a shoulder replacement? Not only is there not really a non-metal one, but the shoulder replacements that are available that are metal, it's a really tricky joint to put a total joint into. It's tough for those implants. Any implant that wasn't metal would have not only all the regular issues that like a hip or a knee has, but those additional issues that are particular to shoulders in terms of high loading and the biological environment, not a lot of a fixation bone to stick it to. While there are companies investigating different types of implants, I believe the heart of that are still metals and not likely to change anytime okay, soon. Okay, I'm going to open a can of worms here. What about for the metal allergic patient who needs one of these big replacements with a stem, with a shoulder, with a hip and knee and mm -hmm. super sensitive like me, like I'd rather die mm -hmm. than have one of those at this point. Maybe rheumatology medications would help. That's mm -hmm. something I hadn't mm -hmm. even crossed my wheelhouse. But what about the coating of implants with carbon fiber, titanium nitride just came to my desk yesterday. Is that possible? And is it obtainable? And if so, how? That is a very good question. This might be see this big pushback on this issue by companies that don't have implants to address this issue. Those companies have been titanium nitriding their surfaces with coatings. The problem with coatings is they don't perform in wear very well. For instance, when a knee implant is wearing that titanium nitride coating is unfortunately just not as good as a wear resistance of a cobalt alloy implant. Nothing to date beats cobalt alloy for wear resistance. And so coating with titanium nitride or even the cobalt alloy with titanium nitride, the problem is the physical mechanical properties of those coatings are not as superior as the metal itself. And in some cases, the surfaces of those articulating implants really need that wear resistance to be optimal. But having said that, they are titanium nitride coating their implants. So they look gold, just like drill bits that are coated with titanium nitride has that kind of gold color to it. As this issue grows, more and more companies are offering those types of implants to their surgeons for people that have this problem. We're not seeing any kind of growth in testing. I think the growth in patch testing has gone up and the growth in surgeons that are just using a history to then put in something like that kind of implant is growing. So coatings are actually something that are being used to try to deal with this. What do you think about carbon fiber? There was a case I know of a scoliosis patient who had spinal implants and had to have them all removed. I believe they took them out, coated them with carbon fiber, replaced them. He's having no response whatsoever. Do you know anything about the carbon fiber coating? I do a little bit in, in terms of not only carbon fiber coating, but actually just the entire implant carbon fiber. And the trouble with those is the, again, wear resistance. And will they make less debris in general? So while they will release less metal, they may make more little particulate debris. Okay. And if they make more particulate debris than they do, a metal implant releases metal ions and particles they might be worse. And so a lot of those implants are still in the testing phase. 
So what do you suggest for a metal allergic patient that has to have a knee or a shoulder or a hip? Oof, that is a good question. Or a cardiac stent. Those cardiac stents always kind of freaks me out. So I know it's going to freak you out. They're made of nitinol, which is 75% titanium and then 30% nickel, which is, that is a large amount of nickel. So that's where I'd be dead. It probably matters a lot. And I'm surprised that no nickel testing or allergy testing goes on for those. And yet if I needed a stent, those are life-saving implants. So I guess I would just suck it up on the systemic responses. Of you have, my heart. Thank God you haven't been on the other side where I have been because yeah, I don't think right. I would suck it up. Yeah. I'd be like, let me die. I'm out. Yeah. You unfortunately had a condition that really is not lucky for the rest of us normal. And yeah. unfortunately for you, puts you at really one end of the reactivity right. spectrum. Do you think a larger database of surgeons who will work with metal allergic patients is important? Yeah, I do. And we're trying to foster that at orthopedic analysis. I believe there's a list of physicians on the website. And you have a list of clinical studies, if I remember right, on your website that can... Yeah, validate the test ad nauseum in every way possible. Validate it against itself on different time points. Validate it against patch testing, even though you know how I don't feel that's an appropriate comparison. Yeah, understand. It's validated against pain levels in orthopedic populations, and it's validated and correlated with failures of implants that were known to fail because of excessive metal reactivity. Those references are on the website, along a couple of handy-dandy YouTube videos that we would like to expand on as well and get more explanation into this. Awesome. I'm going to for sure have you back and we're going to continue the discussion because there's there's a lot of stuff. It'd be great to have both you and Melissa on for some Q&A episodes and some good stuff. How did you come to recognize systemic metal allergies that weren't just showing up as skin manifestations? In the beginning, when those first studies were so glaringly apparent to surgeons in the department that no infection and yet very bad reactions around an implant. The most popular cause for an implant to fail is the production of non-allergic particles coming from the plastic of a total hip or total knee, the plastic component that rides on the metal component. Every step you take generates about a million particles, very small. And so over time, those accumulate. And after 10, 15 years, they cause enough of a subtle immune inflammatory reaction as to cause bone to start to go into a resorption because of the immune activity. And so that's when you need a new implant. That's been the predominant cause of implant failure over the long term, called septic long-term failure. There were a lot of researchers researching that in the early days, and very few were researching the hypersensitivity response. And so we went in that area just because there wasn't much on it, and it was a clinically important issue. And so that's how we arrived at studying these lymphocyte responses, as opposed to macrophage responses to just the particles. Okay. Have you seen greater hypersensitivity to metals since the onset of COVID? And has COVID changed our immune system? Sadly, COVID just decimated testing and orthopedic surgeries in general. So we wouldn't really know that for a few years now in terms of Has it increased the overall incidence of metal hypersensitivity? Has it increased even the SI levels that you're so familiar with when it comes to those LTT tests? We don't know that at present. We're getting so much pushback from physicians in these different arenas. 
we're under the gun to try to make our case for the relevance and the utility. One of the publications that we published in abstract form and are trying to get out now in journal form is we did the same sort of LTTs using the COVID antigen of people that had been vaccinated because they've got lots of memory lymphocytes around that are ready to activate to the COVID antigen. And so we looked at those levels and said, well, here's a known response. We know people that are vaccinated are protected from COVID. What is the SI level for that? What we found is that SI level is four. So trying to make a case to physicians that this is important. When the SI level is at least four, you know that is a very aggressive immune response that is typical of an immune response fairly soon after vaccination because this was done during and right after COVID when the Mm -hmm. vaccine was available. That SI level of four can be very detrimental. And so that's where we start to say maybe there should be action taken when it comes to SI levels. That's not to say that an SI level of two is totally irrelevant because that was used in the old days to determine drug allergy level. Got it. Why do females show greater hypersensitivity to metals over men? That's not only restricted to females in humans, that's also females in animal models as well. While we would like to blame cosmetics and stuff like that and prior exposure, and that definitely plays a role because when you are sensitized to something, then you develop that hypersensitivity response. Women are generally better immune protected against disease than those are, but they have, because of that over an aggressive immune system, they have higher incidence of autoimmune diseases and hypersensitivity is included in that. You did a study a few years ago on servicemen and women who received metal fragments in the battlefield. I'm thinking people don't even think about that. What did that study find? Yeah. How cool is that? That was a study that I was lucky enough to do with the DOD for soldiers that had battlefield injury and had indwelling metal fragments versus soldiers that had just injury. And were their LTT levels higher? And if so, by how much and prevalence and so on. And, and what we found is and they, they do. They both had higher uh, circulating levels of some metals, although that was very difficult to find because the fragments are not huge. But they did have higher levels of LTT responses to metals, which was essentially very expected because both they had a traumatic injury. So a lot of danger signaling going on there, as well as a metal fragment that's still in And many of them could be experiencing chronic pain, not even have it on their radar, not realizing this paleo diet they're eating that's supposed to be anti-inflammatory, super high in nickel, and could be contributing to the chronic pain from their metal shrapnel, et cetera, et cetera. It's probably not even on anybody's radar. Yeah. Yeah. Is any amount of a metal ion circulating in the bloodstream acceptable or do all of them initiate an immune response? Oh, yeah. Not only are they acceptable, they're essential. So we're just living in a Goldilocks zone. Too little and you actually perish. Too much and you actually perish. So we live in this realm and that includes things like cobalt. Cobalt is essential for us to live. We can't live without it. And, you know, cobalt. Yeah, I'm allergic to iron on the orthopedic analysis test. I've got an iron. Well, you know, there's iron and there's iron, right? We're we're whole oxygen system is based on hemoglobin and iron being at the center of that. But an iron implant that's corroding in you is going to release locally high levels of iron. Now, those high levels might not all be sequestered for something like hemoglobin. They could combine with serum proteins. And when you start sticking proteins to proteins in a non-natural way, 
those can be interpreted as an antigen and then have a reaction. All right. Do you study galvanic reactions at all? And what are your thoughts regarding that? Galvanic corrosion is a form of corrosion. So in a way we do, luckily for everybody, even some of the most dissimilar metals attached to each other do not create much of a, quote, galvanic couple, as you know some have reported. A much bigger issue, it does, but it's 1%. And general corrosion, like crevice corrosion, or mechanically assisted crevice corrosion is really the 99% issue that's much more important in releasing the same amount of metal. One of our little stump speeches that we've been on since the beginning of time was to reduce the amount of crevices in orthopedic implants. When you reduce the amount of connection between them, you reduce that crevice corrosion, you reduce the amount of metal release and improve the chances of those implants working well. The problem is it's a trade-off. It's harder to put in an implant that has no connections. And so you have to get it just right and you can't put this part in correctly and then attach this part to it. The problem is that that has its downsides. So it's this, this balancing act of what is better and how much you can get away with in one risk versus another risk, unfortunately. Okay. So how important do you feel filing an adverse event report is if you've had a reaction to an implant? That is totally out of my wheelhouse. Just from my personal perspective, and this is my opinion, it's pretty important because if there was too much attention being paid to this, then I would say maybe not. You know, there's too much attention being paid to this issue already. And then it's starting to supersede other issues and starting to take over other risk factors, which might be more important risk factors. But at current, when there's so much dismissal of this phenomena that's prevalent and encouraged, I think those adverse the event reports are appropriate. What percentage of patients receiving revision surgeries do you think file them? And is it enough? I have no idea, but my guess okay. is very few. All right. We're going to wrap up soon, but a couple like key questions at the end. And first, before I even get to that, it was very important to a few of my metalhead friends that they wanted to thank orthopedic analysis for the work that you guys do. You guys on the back burner here, that really are at the forefront, even though it's not widely accepted enough at this point, you make it possible for us to have something to take to our surgeons and physicians. You've spent decades of your life researching this for our benefit, and we are so grateful. That's very nice to hear. What what can, well, thank you. What do you think the metal allergic patients can do to help orthopedic analysis? What can we do to help the mission of your company and Meliza and all of you back there fighting for us? Oh, that's a great question. You know, we should have something like I should be able to say, go to the orthopedic analysis website and click on this to send a message to your senator and NIH and the FDA. But it's really those heads of uh, healthcare in the US. So it's the NIH and the FDA. And if they can make this case, important enough for the NIH and the FDA, uh, more will be done on it. I may have a potential solution here. You know, you said you can go to the website and click. I actually do have something that will help all of us, you included. I don't know if you even know about this. You probably don't. On my website, I just started a petition on change.org, which is national and international, to plead for metal hypersensitivity screenings at doctor's offices, medical facilities, surgical centers nationwide. And the idea is that people can go to heavilymetal.com, can click on the petition, sign the petition. And we haven't figured out exactly how to do this, but I envision this 
petition receiving tens of thousands of signatures and, you know, talking about informed consent. It's a very well-written petition. And I envision everybody that signs it being able to print it off wherever they are in the world and take it to their senator, to their medical facility, to their doctor's offices and say, here is a list of thousands of patients with metal hypersensitivity reactions and their comments. Would you please start implementing screening and testing at your facility? Yeah, that's that patient advocacy. This helps everybody. It, it, it yeah, is the entire yeah. community. But a lot of people don't feel like they can talk to their doctor peer to peer or have the doctor's attention for long enough to listen. But if we can say, hey, here's a handout. Could you look at this and get back to me? I hate to say this, but sometimes physicians are dragged into something by their lawyers. And there's not a lot of clear-cut cases out there that physicians have not performed the medical care appropriately when they dismiss this or not use that. But I don't see that as something that is not inevitable. If you dismiss this entirely and people have untoward reactions because of it, that becomes at some point uh, not appropriate for uh, physicians to do. I forgot to mention something earlier on. One thing that we find if I'm going to be espousing something close to medical advice is that uh, one thing we do not do, nor would I encourage any testing lab to do, is to ask people or to tell people that they should go off their anti-inflammatory medications two weeks prior to testing. If their doctor says that's okay and feels that there's a rationale for that, then fine. That can be a life-threatening event for some people to go off their medications. Also, if somebody's on a long-term anti-inflammatory medication, that's the environment that their cells will see anyway. So if that dumbs down their in vitro LTT testing responses, then that's going to occur in vivo anyway and be the most appropriate environment to test those cells under. So we just uh, really caution. I I think if a lab did that in the U.S., uh, they would be uh, sued for malpractice because that is just not um, something that you could, not a blanket statement that can be made, especially in older people that are reliant upon medications, be they anti-inflammatory or not. We recommend close consultation with physicians who are legally responsible for their health. Yes. So uh, work, with, work with your doctors. Yeah. Work with yeah. your doctors. Very, very much. Okay. You've been waiting for this question. What is your favorite heavy metal band and your favorite heavy metal song? Oh, definitely Britney Spears and the original Oops, I Did It Again. You can't get away with that. That's <laughs> no, not heavy no, metal. No no. no, no, it's not. So I know Nine Inch Nails is, is not really heavy metal. Uh, that would be my one. But if I'm going to do old school, I'd have to go with Black Sabbath and Iron Man. Black and then Sabbath 80s would be, would be Rat Round and Round. Okay. Uh, more recent would be like Tool and Sober. You're giving us every decade. Do you know a KMFDM? They're German. I band. do not. My hu- oh, that's a super, good one. If they're super hard, my husband would know them. He likes that death metal, Marilyn Manson and Rammstein. It's, it's danceable heavy metal. Okay. So it's KMFDM and the song is Godlike. You might like it. All right. So he's a fan. You got away with not telling us anything about what your hobbies are, like what you actually like to do. You just went right into all the stuff. Uh, right. For hobbies, I study lymphocytes. And Come on. For other hobbies, I write papers. You are not that boring. <laughs> Man, 
I used to do so much skiing and diving and all kinds of things in my younger years. But these days, you study lymphocytes. It's, uh, it's enough keeping up with this stuff. <laughs> okay, awesome. Well, I cannot thank you enough for coming on the Heavily Metal podcast. We have to do this again. This has been absolutely yeah, delightful. Absolutely. And you're not near like as to. scary as your resume. No, <laughs> I hope not. Okay, well, thank you. I'm going to put a pin in it for now. And you know, at the end, if you've seen any of my podcasts, we have to all come together and reaffirm that we're telling the medical industry that we're not going to take it anymore. All right. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you for tuning in today. Please don't forget to follow me on social media and to like, share, and subscribe. My primary mission is reaching out to others who may be suffering from hypersensitivity reactions to metal implants and pointing them to resources that can assist with hope, help, and healing. If you know someone that suffers from a chronic illness, you might ask if they have any implanted metal hardware and if they've ever had a reaction to jewelry or metals of any kind. Might not even be on their radar. Visit us at heavilymetal.com where you can find images and documentation relating to our show today, as well as a number of valuable resources and links to assist you on your own personal healing journey. Until next time, keep on rocking.